Welcome to the Tingo Investing Podcast, where we teach you how to make a better investment and retirement portfolio. Our goal is to explain everything from basic to advanced concepts in plain language that you can understand, whether you are a beginning investor or a professional. This is episode three titled, Yes, I'll have one portfolio and broker, please. Now today, we're going to be using everything we learned in the past couple podcasts to discuss how to create a basic portfolio. Before I begin, I just want to say a big thank you to the amazing reception this podcast has received. It's gotten 33 five-star ratings in just two weeks and over 800 downloads across the world. The feedback I've received from all of you has been incredible, and I'm just so thankful. I'm really looking forward to continuing this series, and with that, let's move on to the topic. Now, before we, be- we officially begin, I just want to say we're about to get a little bit edgy, and I just want to state here clearly that I'm not giving financial advice. I want this podcast to empower people with the knowledge and tools so they know what they want and can create it. I don't know the financial situation of each and every one of my listeners, so it's important to me that your knowledge will be flexible enough that you know what you want to do. I want to empower people with the freedom of not having to rely on others for financial advice, but knowing that they can rely on themselves. And if you, the listener, do choose to rely on financial advice, it'll be because of the convenience and you'll be able to understand your advisor better, you'll be able to follow along with them, ask them the right questions, challenge them, and make sure you're getting what you paid for with all the hard-earned money. So let's continue on. For this episode, we will discuss what is a portfolio, what are common principles we should keep in mind when designing a portfolio, the different types of investments we can choose and different types of investments that even exist, and in the end, we're going to discuss some common things to look for when you're choosing a broker. Choosing a broker can be pretty daunting, and many of you probably already have a broker, so I'm putting that at the end. Um, Now, to begin, what is a portfolio? A portfolio simply means a group of investments that we hold. It could be just one index fund, one stock, to thousands. So in this episode, we're going to mostly talk about pooled investments, which we discussed in episode two. Specifically, we're going to be using index funds and index ETFs. The general consensus is that a portfolio of many different index funds is probably the best thing to do as a beginner. It's easy, less work, low fees, and studies support it's the best way for new investors to get the highest overall return. Now that we've defined a portfolio, we have to figure out some ways to measure it, like what's good or what's not. After all, what good is having a portfolio if it loses us money? Now, in the previous episodes, we discussed how return on an investment is the best way to measure if it's good. A return is simply saying, how much money do I make for every dollar I put in? And we measure this in percentages. So we measure a portfolio in in this method as well, not just stocks. So if I said, I got 6% this year in my portfolio, that would mean if I had a $100,000 portfolio, I made 6,000 or six grand. My portfolio is now worth $106,000. Now I'm gonna be using $100,000 in these examples because it's a very easy number uh, to play with when we're discussing these examples. But no, you don't need that much money to get started investing. You really can get started with $1,000, but we'll get more into that when we discuss different brokers. Okay, so we discussed that return is a percent on the money we have. So if we had started with $100,000 and we made 6%, that means we made $6,000. So let's say uh, we have $100,000 on January 1st, 2015, and on December 31st, 2015, we had $106,000. So the return was 6%. What if 
the market took a terrible turn. And in the first six months of the year, we lost 30%. So on June, let's say June 1st, 2015, our $100,000 investment lost 30%. So now we only have $70,000. How would this make you feel? You just lost $30,000 in six months. I know me personally, that would not make me feel good at all. So then let's say the market quickly rebounded because remember we ended the year on 106,000. So let's say the market quickly rebounded and recovered and you ended up making 36,000 in the next six months. So overall you did come out 6% higher. It's just the market took a big roller coaster ride to get you there. Now let's take a different scenario. Let's say we en ended up the year with $106,000, but when June came around, this time markets were much more tame and we made 3% by June 1st, 2015. So we made $3,000. And now our portfolio in mid-year is $103,000. And let's say markets continue this trend, our investments, our portfolio continue this trend, and we made another $3,000. So we ended up the year with $106,000. Now, which of these two scenarios seems appealing? The first scenario where you lost 30% and you were at $70,000 mid-year, but then made it back? Or the second scenario where you gradually made 6% throughout the year? Now, the reason most of us prefer number two, unless you have some sort of adrenaline problem you should probably get checked out, it's because of something we call volatility. In the second case, both cases had volatility. It's just the first case had a lot more of it. And what volatility means in very simple terms is how much something moves around. In our portfolio example, the first portfolio had a ton of vol volatility. Its value changed considerably in a short amount of time. In the second case, our portfolio was growing slow and steady. It didn't have as many wild swings, so we would say it has less volatility. So portfolio, so volatility in a portfolio is actually a super complex topic many mathematicians, financial professionals, traders, and academics spend a lot of time on. Uh, because of this, we'll probably dedicate an entire episode to it in the future. But for right now, let's just keep things general and have some fun. So the core of all of this, the reason we're having this discussion of volatility, is that returns are not the only thing we care about when measuring a portfolio. We also care about the volatility of those returns. We want something that gives us the most amount of return, the most amount of money for the least amount of volatility. For example, in the two portfolio cases, we prefer the second case because it gives us the same amount of return, but it's less volatile. Now, people often say volatility is a measure of risk. The riskiness of a portfolio is determined by the volatility. That's a claim made by many people. But why is that? Well, there are a couple of reasons. First, let me mention the principle of volatility is that it has no direction. It can be up or down. But actually in practice, you'll see that in markets, uh, they crash much, much quicker than they go up. So if you pull up a chart of the S&P, um, you can go to Tingo.com and type in the ETF ticker called SPY, S-P-Y, it's an S&P ETF. You'll see that it moves up throughout time gradually, and then there's a quick, sudden, and violent crash. And that's typically what happens. You'll see maybe five to 10 years of slow growth and then a sudden crash in about a year that wipes out like 30 to 60 or 30 to 50% of the value. Um, during the Great Depression in the 30s, it was a lot more, um, but that's just how markets sort of move. So volatility doesn't mean volatility up or down. Volatility can go both ways. And when stocks do move, move down, they tend to move down much quicker and much more rapidly than they moved up. Let's go back 
and start with $100,000 again. And this time, let's say we're in a high portfolio, a high volatility portfolio. And we want to see why people say volatility is very similar to risk. Okay, so we have that $100,000 and we're in a super high volatility portfolio. Now, let's say it has 100% return in about two weeks. Now we have $200,000. That's awesome. We just made $100,000 in two weeks. But volatility can go both ways. So let's say now it goes down 80%. What's our portfolio worth now? It's now worth $40,000. We lost 80% of $200,000, so now we have $40,000. Now let's say the following two weeks after that, it goes up 100% again. It doubles again. Well, now it's worth $80,000. So you see, even though the price doubled twice, because it fell by 80%, it never fully recovered. It doubled, lost 80%, then doubled again, and you were still short $20,000 of your initial investment. You were still only you still only ended up with $80,000 even though we started off with 100. Now, let's take this example again. We started off with $100,000. It doubled, so now we have $200,000. And we now lost um, 80% again. So now we're at $40,000. Well, what if instead of doubling again, it actually continues to go down another 80%? That 40K you had left is now worth $8,000. So you see, when people talk about making a lot of money in a short amount of time, you should ask them, well, how volatile was your portfolio? Because if it's really volatile, it's really easy to make a lot of money just by luck. If they double their money in two weeks, it could also go down. So if they made 100% in two weeks, ask them in a month from now how things are going. And then ask them in a year from now because you're taking on a lot of risk to get those returns. So the goal of this podcast, and not just episode, is to maximize our return for the least amount of volatility. So let's go ahead and start by describing ways people try to achieve this, how to maximize return while minimizing volatility. And I want to begin this by going over a couple different starter portfolios. Often if you Google, what should you do if you want to start investing? You get all sorts of answers. You get short answers, long answers, and you read, 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 read. And it's really frustrating because nobody gives you a straight answer. Then you come across an article that gives you a very straight answer, but they don't get into the nitty gritty and you feel really uncomfortable putting your money on advice you don't really understand. And this is where I want this podcast to be helpful for you. We're going to kind of work backwards. We're going to discuss why people give you these, uh, quote, rule of thumbs, unquote, and then we're going to get into the nitty gritty. So we're going to work backwards, go from the quick hand advice and work into why people give you that advice. Awesome. Let's talk stocks. Typically, stocks return between 9 and 10% on average a year. Government bonds return about 5 to 6% a year. Now, the standard blanket advice is you should be in 60% stocks and 40% bonds. This is called the 60-40 allocation. Now, why do people recommend that? Well, we discussed in episode 1 how AAA bonds are typically seen as safer. Now, if you remember, uh, AAA is a credit rating of either a country or a company. It's the highest possible rating. Think of it as a credit score for the country or company. Like we have credit scores when we apply for mortgages, credit cards. Countries and companies also have credit scores. So AAA is the highest possible credit score a country or company can have. And on average, a, a AAA government bond like the U.S. Treasury or U.S. bond 
tends to give on average 5% a year. So notice the volatility of stocks tends to be higher than bonds though. So notice how the returns of stocks are higher than bonds, but the volatility is also higher. People typically say stocks are riskier, but the market does reward you more if you do want to take on that risk. So that's like a general guideline of markets. If you're taking more risk, you should be paid more. If you were taking less risk, you should be paid less. But if you're taking more risk and not being paid more, that's not a good thing. So because of these reasons, a balance between stocks and bonds is often recommended. Stocks and bonds do not typically move together, but they both return you money. This is a concept we call positive expected value. We invest in stocks, bonds, and other things because we expect them to make us money. They have a positive expected value. But if two things don't move together, that helps diversification. They both make us money in the long run, but they take different paths to get there. So when one goes up, the other may go down or stay the same. And when one goes down, the other may go up or stay the same. This helps sort of smooth things out. And this helps stabilize things. For example, if stocks drop 4% and bonds go up 2% and we're 50-50 on it, our portfolio is only down 2%. If we were all in stocks, our portfolio would be down 4%. So over time though, even though they take these different paths, they're both expected to make us money. And we'll talk more in depth about how we can measure how they move together and what diversification is in the next episode, episode 4 of our series. But let's bring it back. So we were at a 60-40% portfolio recommendation, where we're in 60% stocks and 40% bonds. Well, how does it do? Well, in order to measure how it does, let's create some sort of baseline so that we can compare it to something. Let's see how a stock portfolio would do. So let's say we're 100% in stocks. If we invested 100% of our portfolio in the S&P in 2005, which was 10 years ago, and we left that investment alone, what would happen? Well, today, our portfolio would be up 73%. So if we had $100,000 and we invested it in 2005 and left it alone, it would be worth $173,000 today. But what would have happened in 2008 because we faced one of the greatest recessions our economy has seen? Well, at one point during 2008, our stocks fell 45%. So if, if the S&P fell 45%. So if we were 100% invested in stocks in, 2000, in 2005, we would have only had $55,000 in 2008, 2009. We would have lost $45,000 of our initial investment. In 2015, though, we would have $173,000. So do you remember the first portfolio example we talked about when discussing volatility? How we ended up the year a ton of, like up 6%, and in this case, we're ending up 10 years, 73%, but it took a really roller coaster ride to get there. So if we put $100,000 in 2005, we would have watched that $100,000 drop to $55,000 before it reached $173,000. That's one heck of a roller coaster. Now, that's our portfolio if we were 100% in stocks. But what about our 60-40 portfolio, or 60% stock or 40% bond portfolio? Well, if we started it in 2005 and left it alone, it would be up 60% today. So our $100,000 investment would be worth $160,000 today. But what would happen in 2008? 
Well, in 2008, our 60-40 portfolio would be down approximately 25% versus 45% if we were all in stocks. So at one point, our portfolio would go to 75,000. So our portfolio would be $100,000 on in 2005. It would have reached 75,000 in 2008 and it would have ended up in 2015 at $160,000. Notice how the drop is smaller, whereas if we were all in stocks, we would go from 100,000 to 55,000. In our 60/40, we go from 100,000 to 75,000. Now, I'm going to I'm going to ask you all to picture something and this is going to explain why this is important. If you close your eyes for a second, imagine your portfolio was entirely stocks. You're about to retire in one year from now. And imagine it's 2008, so you're gonna retire in 2009. You're 64 years old, and you're planning to live off your retirement portfolio. But now to the, the 2008 financial crisis happens, and you lost almost half of your entire retirement portfolio. You thought you had $100,000, and now you have half of that. How would you feel? How would that affect your retirement timeline? Unfortunately, this happened to a lot of people. It was a devastating event for many people nearing retirement. Not only that, jobs were harder to come by as the unemployment rate skyrocketed. And this is a big issue with the 60-40 model. It doesn't change as you change. As you approach retirement, you probably want to be in something more stable. You're willing to take less return because of it. You don't want to be in a high-risk environment right before you're about to retire and potentially lose a lot of money and have to push back or push forward your retirement. So remember, our 60-40 bond portfolio, we took a lower return, but we also had a lower loss. But the problem with the 60-40 model is as we age, as our incomes change, as our financial situations change, as our life changes, the 60-40 model doesn't change. And that's going to bring me to the next rule of thumb. 100 minus your age. This means you take 100, subtract your age, and that gives you how much you should invest in stocks. So let's pretend we're 30. 100 minus 30 gives us 70. That 70 represents the amount of our portfolio that we should be invested in stocks. So if you are 50, that's 100 minus 50, so you should be 50% in stocks. The other portion, your age, is typically how much you should be in bonds or cash. So if you're 30, 70% stocks, 30% bonds. If you're 50, 50% stocks and 50% bonds. 100 minus your age. Keep in mind, this isn't financial advice from me. I'm not going to give financial blanket financial advice because each and every one of my listeners is different. But this is a common rule of thumb that many financial advisors share with people. And the reason I think this is more preferable to the 60-40, if you had to choose, is because as you get older, your situation changes. You may want to take less risk. See, the 60-40 model isn't dynamic. At least the 100 minus your age model is a little bit more dynamic. Now, you may feel comfortable changing up this allocation to whatever combination of stocks and bonds you want. If you're 30, you may want to be 100% in stocks, or you may want to be 100% in bonds. It's just a rule of thumb. But the cool thing about this rule of thumb is that it encourages us to think dynamically. It gets us to constantly question, how much risk can I take as we get older, change jobs, maybe you decide to have kids, you have grandkids, start a business, anything. As long as we constantly ask ourselves, how much risk can I take now every time we sort of move throughout life? And I think one of the best measures I ever heard for assessing whether you're comfortable with the risk you're taking 
or whether you're comfortable with the volatility your portfolio has is this. Are you able to sleep at night? If you're going to bed worried about your portfolio, you've probably taken a little bit too much risk. You're probably in assets that are a little bit too volatile. So I would highly recommend you sort of scale it back until you can sleep easy at night. And the reason I'm laughing is, is that I've definitely been there when I first started investing. I couldn't actually sleep at night. And that's when I realized I need to learn more about position sizing and volatility and all that sort of stuff. Anyway, so I told you some statistics behind the 60-40 allocation, but I don't know your age. So I can't tell you how much you would make or lose in 2008 using 100 minus your age formula. Well, I created a tool at Tingo.com, T-I-I-N-G-O.com, so you can run the same statistics I did. What you can do is, is if you go to Tingo.com, you click at the top on Portfolio, you can type in what portfolio you would want or what theoretical portfolio you would want. And then you can see how it would perform in 2008, 2001, or any other time period if it repeated itself. In finance, we call this a backtest. So to use it, go to Tingo.com, click on portfolio at the top, type in your portfolio, and then in the top right corner where it says overview, change that to backtest. And then you'll see an interface that I think is pretty self-explanatory. But there are a couple of different scenarios that are already included in there, so you don't have to type things out like 2008 and 2001. But feel free to look at your portfolio and see how it performed during any time period. I actually created this tool because I couldn't find any other website that offered this level of analytics and this level of information. Um, actually, this type of information typically costs hedge funds between fifteen and twenty thousand dollars a month. But I've created it free for you all, so enjoy, and I hope hope you get a lot of value out of it. Now, the goal is to make these tools accessible for everyone. So, with that, we've just now discussed two different star uh, starter portfolios: a sixty forty allocation and a hundred minus your age allocation. So maybe now you have an idea in your head of what kind of mix in stocks and bonds you want. You in your head know which model you might feel more comfortable or if you have your own allocation ideas in your head. But what do we actually trade to get them? Going from our previous episode on pooled investments, a lot of research and advice tells us as newbie investors, we should stick to index funds or ETFs. The reason is that it takes a lot of time, effort, and research to select a mutual fund that may outperform. There are many kinds of ETFs out there for stocks. You will see small cap, which means smaller sized companies. It's an ETF that is an index to just smaller companies. Or large cap, or bigger companies. The S&P 500 is considered large cap. So if we're looking at basic stock index ETFs, you could use SPY or VOO. These are two tickers for large cap company ETFs. Throughout this podcast, you're going to hear me say SPY a lot, and you've probably already heard me say SPY a lot as an ETF for the S&P. And one of the main reasons is, is that SPY is sort of an industry standard. It's also the most widely traded S&P ETF. But if you're looking for the lowest fees, the Vanguard product VOO can't really be beat. It has a management fee of 0.05%. SPY is higher. For bonds, there are also many kinds of different ETFs. A common one to use in the industry is TLT. It's the Barclays 20 plus year government bond fund. It only invests in US government bonds considered very safe. Like SPY, you may hear me say TLT because it's sort of like an industry standard. It's a common one we talk about. But if you're actually trying to invest, the Vanguard product, a similar Vanguard product, has lower fees and that's VGLT. And I promise you, <laughs> I'm not being promoted by 
Vanguard. In fact, I told them about this podcast saying, hey, I mentioned you guys. And I was hoping for like a retweet or something nice, you know, maybe like help spread the word. And they pretty much said, cool, bro, in a more corporate term. But the reason I continue to come back to Vanguard is that they do tend to be the industry leader in reducing fees, even if they're just sort of like, cool, man. I still think they actually offer pretty good products. Warren Buffett does as well. And so do many other people in the industry. Okay, so of course, there are many different kinds of stock and bond funds. When you look up ETFs and the like, you're going to see growth stocks, value stocks, and you're going to see something similar with bond ETFs. You're going to see thousands. We're going to get into what each of those are down the line. But for right now, we know we have two ETFs. We have a large cap stock ETF, VOO, that we can trade. And we have VGLT, which is a government bond ETF that we can also trade. So with just trading and buying those two ETFs, we can get started with a starter portfolio that we just mentioned. How cool is that? That's so cool. All right, so let's go buy some ETFs. Oh wait, we need a broker. So to choose a broker, hold on. We need to talk about which broker to choose. All right, that was an awesome transition. So let's just stop for a moment and appreciate it. All right, I'm over it. You probably aren't though, because that was a pretty good transition. So I'll pause one more second. Okay, cool. So now we need a broker to wrap all of this up. We know what kind of portfolio we want. We know which stocks we're going to trade. We know which ETFs we're going to buy, but we need a broker to help us buy it. So how do we choose a broker? A broker is a company that helps us execute trades to buy and sell stocks, mutual funds, index funds, and ETFs. So I'm not going to re recommend any specific broker because that's not my style. And frankly, I can't even if I wanted to. Each and every one of you has unique circumstances, so one broker may be better for you than it would be for another. And I want to help you find which broker suits your specific needs by explaining common things you see when you're looking for a broker. There are two main types of brokerages, a discount broker and a full service broker. Full service brokers typically provide all sorts of services like advising, financial advising, tax planning, and so on. They're also much more costly. The websites you typically hear about though, like TD Ameritrade, Scott Trade, Trade King, and so on, are called discount brokers. Their goal is to minimize the amount of fees you pay for trading. And the way these brokers work is that they charge you a fee each time you buy or sell a stock, mutual fund, index fund, ETF, and so on. So you get charged on both buying and selling. Typically these fees range from $5 to $10 for stocks and $10 to $50 for mutual funds. So here's where things can get a little bit tricky because some of these brokerages have partnerships or offers where they will give you discounts on specific ETFs, mutual funds, or index funds. So they may say, oh yeah, a mutual fund costs $20 to trade unless you trade this specific one, in which case it's free. So you may not end up actually paying any commission on certain products, but each one has a different list of products. So you may actually have to dig around and see which products they offer free trading on and see if that fits what you want. Now, another option is you can actually choose to invest directly with a mutual fund company by creating an account. You can do so at a place like Vanguard or Fidelity and, the, and so on. The benefits to this is that they typically don't charge any commission or fees on products that they offer. So if you're with Vanguard and you buy a Vanguard product, they're not going to charge you fees on it. This is nice if you know you're going to stick to a specific company's products. The downside is that if you do want to buy stocks or use another firm's ETFs or mutual funds, it can cost you a lot more than a typical discount broker. You may end up paying double to trade a stock that's not Vanguard, for example. So if you have an account with Vanguard mutual funds and you want to buy a stock maybe by Fidelity or an ETF by Fidelity, 
it may actually cost you more than if you were at a discount broker. These transaction fees can actually get pretty significant if you add them all up, especially if you're just starting to invest. For example, let's say you had $1,000 to invest. And let's say you went with a broker. I'm going to make something up here. It's not a real broker. Uh, Roadrunner Brokerage Company. And they charge you $5 every time you bought or sold an ETF. Well, that's $10 total, which is 1% of your $1,000. So with five com $5 commissions each way, you're going to be in the whole 1% if you need to buy and sell on the same day. Now, let's say we went to another brokerage, Coyote Brokerage Company, and they charged you $10 to buy and sell both ways. That's $20 total, which that's 2% of your $1,000 initial investment. Now remember, the S&P on average returns between 9 and 10%. So these can subtract 1 or 2% from that. And bonds typically give you around 5 to 6%. So 1 to 2% subtracted from the bonds is also pretty significant. So if you're going to be trading pretty frequently, these feeds can add up, especially if you're a newer investor. So what I recommend is you do a quick calculation. You see how much you're going to trade each month or each year, and you add up all the fees associated with it. And then you can compare the brokers that way. And that's just one factor. You should also consider what benefits they may offer you. For example, many different brokers offer their own tools and analysis. But some brokers also charge you a fee if you don't trade at all. It's called an inactivity fee. So if you don't make any trades for about a set amount of time, they're going to apply a fee. And the next thing I want to quickly discuss, and this is pretty important, especially if you're going to a broker um, that isn't as popular, is make sure they are SIPC insured. SIPC stands for Securities Investor Protection Corporation. Think of it, it's similar to the FDIC. So when you deposit money in a bank, it's insured by a federal agency known as the FDIC up to $250,000. The SIPC works similarly, except for two major differences. One, it is not a federal agency, but it is federally mandated. The second is, is the SIPC will not protect you if you lose money by trading. It will protect you though if your, broker, if your brokerage goes bankrupt. It will protect you up to a half a million dollars and up to 250000 of that can be in cash. Now, the SIPC will not protect you if your broker misleads you though or gives you poor financial advice that loses you money. Some brokers may actually go above and beyond and get additional insurance to SIPC. They do that because they want to protect their customers after the half million dollar mark. So if you're a wealthier individual, you don't only want half of that protected, you want the full million dollars protected. Now if you fall into that category, I would highly recommend you take the time to call each broker you're considering and ask if they have that insurance. The websites can feel very confusing and almost like there are fees everywhere. So we discussed commissions uh, and why that's important, especially if you're a new investor. They can add up quite a bit. We've talked about inactivity fees, and we've talked about how there are different level of fees. For example, it may be more expensive to trade mutual funds with one company than it is stocks or ETFs. And then finally, we discussed how mutual fund companies will often give their products for free. So if you know you want to stick to a specific mutual fund company like Vanguard or Fidelity, then you won't be charged fees to buy and sell their products. Okay, before we conclude on brokerages, I want to preemptively address a question you may all have. And this is a question I had and many people have asked me. The sign-up process for brokers is relatively straightforward, but many people pause at this one question of margin. So what is margin? Margin means you can borrow money from your broker and then use that money to trade. You can basically take the cash in your account, double it, and use twice the money to trade. 
Now, I highly, highly, highly recommend you do not do this, especially if you are a new investor. In fact, this often applies to very experienced investors too. When you're borrowing money and you're doubling it to invest in something, you can actually lose twice the amount of money. You can double the volatility of your portfolio. So it's easier to lose all of your money. For example, if you had $10,000 and you decided to use your margin and trade with $20,000, so you put $20,000 in a stock, if that stock fell by 25%, that would be 25% of $20,000. So you would lose $5,000. You would actually lose 50%. So your losses would be doubled. If that stock dropped 50%, your entire portfolio would be wiped out. That's why margin can be dangerous or leverage can be dangerous. So there's an upside to a margin account. When you sell a stock ETF or mutual fund, it takes three days for the money to hit your account. We typically call this T plus three. It's today plus three days. So if you stole, sold out of a stock on Monday, you wouldn't be able to trade again with that cash with the proceeds from that sale until Thursday. But if you have a margin account, brokers will typically let you trade the same day. So if you have a margin account, brokers will let you sell a stock on Monday and then also buy a new stock with those proceeds on Monday. Now this happens because there's a ton of clearing work that needs to happen, which is why we have to wait T plus three. But if you have margin, you don't have to wait T plus three. Wow, we've covered a ton in this episode and we made amazing progress. In just three episodes, we now understand what a portfolio, what a portfolio is, how we have to use returns in the context of volatility, and two different type of starter portfolio allocations and their drawbacks and benefits. And finally, we discussed how to choose a broker. So if investing in a company was like setting up a piece of equipment, we just did the quick start guide. And get ready, friends, because we're now about to read the entire manual, except the non-English translations. That might get a little bit redundant, and I don't want to confuse you all as to why I'm suddenly speaking in fluent French. Actually, I'm pretty sure if I started speaking fluent French, I would actually be confused too, because I don't know French. So in the next episode, we're going to talk about correlation and beta. These are two metrics we can use to measure diversification. Understanding these will help us trade more than just large stocks and U.S. bonds. We're going to be able to break into different types of investments. The stocks, mutual funds, index funds, and ETF world is massive, and these metrics will help us narrow down on the assets we care about. All right, all. We're awesome. You're awesome. And I loved making this episode. If you have any questions for me or feedback, please email me at rishi at tingo.com. That's R-I-S-H-I at T-I-I-N-G-O dot com. I've already received amazing feedback from all of you, and I love hearing it, whether it's good or bad. I mean, everybody loves compliments, so you can always drop one or two in there. But either way, I love hearing from you. All right, guys, I'll see you next episode.